This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Tim and I have gone through some of the headlines, but we just want to remind you, Citigroup going back to requiring employees, regardless of their vaccination status, to wear masks when they are in the office. That's according to a person in the know. CDC, we heard for them, uh, Tim, advising fully vaccinated individuals to once again start wearing masks in public indoor settings in places where the virus is spreading rapidly. And we've had a ton of companies, particularly in the big tech space, Twitter, Google, uh, Lyft, rolling back, bringing workers back to the office. The big question I think that many people are grappling with is how do they make sense of it? If they Mm -hmm. were vaccinated in January, February, many people were vaccinated in April. Are they going to need a booster? We're exactly. getting information about that, too. Fortunately, Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joins us now on the phone from Pittsburgh. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Adalja, I want to start with the news that we got from the CDC earlier this week that I think was confusing to a lot of people. Um, do you think that people who live in what the CDC defines as uh, areas of concern, uh, including New York City, including Arkansas, if they have been vaccinated, should they wear a mask indoors? It's something that, that I think should be more left to individual discretion for fully vaccinated individuals, because there there may be a risk that people who are fully vaccinated and get a breakthrough infection may develop enough viral load that they could potentially be contagious. But it's not what's driving the pandemic. It's not what's driving transmission in these hotspots. So to make a policy, in my mind, based on something that's by their own admission, a very rare occurrence, doesn't necessarily make make sense to me. I think if you're an immunosuppressed person and you've been fully vaccinated and you're in a high-risk setting, it may make sense to wear a mask so that you don't get a breakthrough infection. But what we're talking about with breakthrough infections are largely clinically insignificant, meaning no symptoms, mild symptoms. It's When you walk through a hospital, it's not breakthrough infections that you're seeing in the hospital. It's almost exclusively people who are not vaccinated. So to me, that doesn't really seem congruent, and I think it is confusing, and I think it's going to be something that has basically only a marginal benefit, if any, uh, if, w- when implemented. What about, so the, what's happening in my universe right now uh, is people, all my friends have kids who are under the age of 12. That's where I am, I am in life. And what they're wondering is, okay, well, my kid can't be vaccinated. Can I actually pass a breakthrough infection to my kid? Like, do I need to start wearing a mask at work because that's a risk? I, I would not. I think that this is a very, very low risk. Obviously, if you have a child that has severe asthma or has had a heart transplant, for example, you may want to take extra precautions. But in general, this is a very rare occurrence and not something that I think really makes uh, a major impact on the, on how this pandemic is going to unfold. That that being said, it's also true that just because children are not vaccinated doesn't mean that they're at very heightened risk for severe disease with COVID-19, especially as you get to those younger age groups mm. where COVID-19 is more like other respiratory viruses that they may have, that they may face. So uh, I, I think that this comes up to kind of parental risk tolerance. And with unvaccinated children that are healthy, I think the risk that they get it from a vaccinated person and have a, have a severe outcome is very, very, uh, if not 
completely near zero. Dr. Dalja, then, do you think the CDC made a mistake in coming out with that mask guidance? I do think they made a mistake. I think what to make a policy based on a very rare event occurring and at the same time undermine the vaccines in the mind of the vaccine hesitant, because now they see nothing changes for them if they get vaccinated, really, uh, I, I think, has set this whole thing back. Because the goal of the vaccines was never to block every breakthrough infection. The goal of the vaccines was to stop serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And as we all know, it's, those are, the vaccines are working tremendously when you use that to, to measure their success. Because who's in the hospital? Unvaccinated people. Who are dying? Unvaccinated people. The vaccines are working extremely well. They are the solution. Going back to kind of a primitive masking approach when we have a 21st century solution, the vaccine really makes no sense to me. And by their own admission, the CDC says this is probably accounting for a very, very small portion of the transmission going on. So what impact do you think that will have if it's only a very Mm -hmm. small transmission? And especially in those places that are hotspots, those people are not going to wear masks. They're not going to get vaccinated. And I think this is just going to further entrench their vaccine hesitancy and confuse everybody else in the rest of the country trying to understand if it applies to them or not. Although we've done some analysis here at Bloomberg, I know Drew Armstrong has done some reporting that in those hotspots where people uh, have been slow to get the vaccine, that those numbers are going up uh, maybe as a result of this heightened awareness. Is there something to be said by saying, okay, we're going back to masks, uh, things are getting a little bit tricky again, that that might get more people who were hesitant to get the vaccine to get it now? There has been some uptick in vaccination rates in some of those hotspot areas, but that occurred before this CDC guidance. And remember, we've never said that unvaccinated people should be going around infecting people without masks. What, what particularly is I have a problem with with the CDC guidance is the guidance for vaccinated people wondering whether that's the right message to be sending and whether the data actually justifies this type of a of a reaction based on the fact that it's not likely the it is clearly not what's driving driving the pandemic we are in a pandemic as the cdc director said of the unvaccinated that's where our focus really should be and trying to get vaccine uptake up but i think now if you tell somebody that lives in missouri if you get fully vaccinated you still have to wear a mask they may not get vaccinated. Remember that we saw a big uptick when the CDC changed their guidance and said, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. So uh, I I think this is a lot more problematic. I want to get right back to Dr. Amish Adalja, infectious disease physician and senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Charlie, of course, uh, mentioning uh, and playing a little bit of a sound from another interview from one of his colleagues. Um, Dr. Adalja, What I want to ask you is if we didn't have the CDC come out and say, you've got to start wearing masks, and we just kind of kept reopening the economy, those of us who got vaccines going about our business, could we do that? And what would be the trajectory of maybe what the world might look like, especially since we are seeing rising cases and rising hospitalizations in some U.S. hotspots? How would it play out? I guess I'm trying to understand it. Exactly the same, because it's not vaccinated people that are driving hospitalizations. It's not vaccinated people that are driving cases. It's the unvaccinated. So the CDC guidance was for vaccinated people to wear masks in high risk in, in high risk situations. But they're not the ones driving it. So no, I don't think that the CDC guidance is going to change a trajectory one way or the other, because it's not vaccinated people that are causing hospitalizations, as we've said right. multiple times. The, almost universally, it's the unvaccinated that are in hospital. So, no, I don't think this is going to make a, a major 
a major dent in what's going on here. What will make a dent is the unvaccinated changing their behaviors by either starting to wear masks or getting themselves vaccinated, which is the ultimate solution. But if we just kept going, we can manage servicing those that are unvaccinated who come down with COVID? I think the fear is, you know what I'm asking, the fear is we go back to where we were a year ago. And it sounds like we wouldn't do that, or maybe in certain spots of the country. I don't think COVID-19 is a systemic risk to the United States anymore, because enough high-risk people have been vaccinated in many parts of the the country, in most parts of the country. So you'll see cases decoupled from hospitalizations. There are some places like Springfield, Missouri, like Arkansas, like Louisiana, where that's not the case. So that becomes a regional issue. But again, it's not the vaccinated people that are causing that problem. It's the unvaccinated people that are spreading it amongst themselves. And whatever contribution, if there is one, of vaccinated people, it is a minuscule proportion of what's going on here. So restricting what vaccinated people can do on behalf of the unvaccinated isn't fair. I don't think it's scientific because if you're fully vaccinated, COVID-19 is no longer a threat to you. You will not get serious disease, hospitalization or death. And period end. The vaccines are, are, mm-hmm. are doing their job. It's the fact that not enough people have taken taken the vaccine. That's causing the problem. And these breakthrough infections, which were expected, are mostly clinically insignificant, have very, very mild symptoms and are not even a problem for the people who get those breakthrough infections. And the issue has to be focusing on the unvaccinated people in those hotspots that don't want to be vaccinated. They don't want to wear masks. And that's where our problem is. And I think that's how we're going to progress for some time in this two-track pandemic where the Northeast, for example, has COVID managed more like a normal respiratory infection and other parts of the country where it's still a disruptive effect until more people get vaccinated or the Delta variant burns itself out by vac- by infecting enough of the population. Dr. It's not Hel- a good situation. Yeah, right? We only have a minute left, and I know that a, a lot of people listening right now are thinking about kids because the people under 12 in this country are the ones who are not vaccinated yet. What uh, One listener writing in now asking about the real risk of mortality and morbidity within within kids. What do we know about the latest data? What do we know about the numbers? Well, children represent a very, very small proportion of the morbidity and mortality in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Yes, there have been kids hospitalized and kids have died, but it's as a, at a percentage basis, it's very, very small. And when you get to that younger age group, especially less than 12, it's comparable, if not less, than what we see with influenza, what we see with RSV. So I think that's something that's important to know is that for younger children that are healthy, that don't have asthma, don't have heart disease, or heart transplants, or whatever it might be, this is on par with other respiratory viruses that we deal with year in and year out. So that gives gives you some cushion there. It's very different in younger children versus, versus older people. That's mm-hmm. where we've seen the morbidity and mortality. Children tend to be spared from the severe effects. Thank you so much. Yeah, good to Always keep in mind appreciate if school it. gets back in session. Exactly. Dr. Amish Adalja, infectious disease physician and senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, this may rightfully freak you out. It's about the last days of the rainforest. Yes, that rainforest, so crucial to the global environment, species, all of our living beings. It's a story in the magazine. It's about how the Brazilian Amazon is approaching the point of no return and the government there, Tim, fanning the flames. Joel Weber is editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He's with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jessica Bryce is senior editor for Latin America News at Bloomberg News, and she joins us on the phone from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Joel, 
we were talking about this during the break. I read the story this morning. It is something that actually put me in a pretty sour and foul mood because it is incredibly depressing. The Amazon rainforest, it's one of the globe's greatest natural resources. In the past 40 years, we've lost an area as big as California to deforestation. Yeah, this is a gut-wrenching story, and, and I, I kind of can't think of something that has bigger global implications than um, losing uh, uh, the Amazon. And what Jessica's uh, uh, story shows is that it's actually – it's really nuanced, um, and I think that is one thing if you spend some time with the story – um, reading it or, or listening to it, if you prefer, it, you, you will come away with some of that nuance. And what she ends up doing is walking us through some of the characters um, that are on the ground there. And, and as she'll tell us, uh, the story started as a as a data project and then mm-hmm. became probably one of the most compelling stories um, I've ever published as the editor of Business Week. Um, and and you know the thing that I think um, it shows more than anything is that there is a official land grab policy that is happening in Brazil and it's allowing the rainforest to basically get turned into grassland that can be um, um, where cattle can be raised, which is about the the worst 180 that we can do for the planet, <laughs> as you can imagine. So, so Jessica, walk us through um, where you started this project and, and what you learned along the way. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I started the project really looking at the data behind deforestation, trying to figure out, you know, we've been struggling with this issue for decades now, and why is it still something that we're we're seeing? Why is why is it not something that the world is able to to stop? Why is not the Brazil government not stopping it? Um, so I started looking at the data of who's actually doing it, and it took me in in place in into directions that I had never really expected. I mean, it's, it is such a nuanced story. It is such a complicated story. And what it comes down to is, you know, the folks on the ground uh, for decades, they've been told that deforestation is a good thing, that they need to deforest the land. And in fact, in some cases, um, they were, you know, handed plots. And if they didn't deforest the land, they risk losing those plots. And so that culture has really stuck in the Amazon and the folks there now, which a lot of them are incredibly poor. Um, the government has, uh, keeps that policy alive because it helps pump this land, this cleared land, into industrial farming operations that feed the world. I mean, this is such a big part of it, right? Supporting the people who live in a country and area, right? And so there's, as you just explained, that on one hand, but at the same time, we're talking about the existence of the global population and protecting the rainforest. It's a policy that's not just from President Bolsonaro. It's been around for a while. It has been around for a while. Um, During the dictatorship, uh, the government really prioritized giving it to big landowners, big industry. Um, And then so you had this population of people who'd been working the land for for generations. And they um, and so when the democracy came about, the government decided to give them small plots of land. So that was in the Constitution. What we saw is that two governments prior to Bolsonaro, they moved the needle forward. They said, okay, so we'll amnesty more recent deforestation. We'll amnesty bigger deforestation. Now what the government wants to do is sort of take that to, like, uh, just a very scary uh, a very scary next step and say, okay, we're going to start 
amnestying more recent deforestation as recently as 2012. Bolsonaro did want an amnesty as recently as 2018. Um, but we're not even going to check it. We're going to do it all by satellite. Um, and mm. so it really opens the door to almost 16 million hectares of, of, of new Amazon land that could be um, amnestied, basically. This is Amazing. stolen public land that could be amnestied. Can you make the connection for people who live thousands of miles away from the Amazon about just why it is so important, not just for Brazil, but for our own health? Because that was one of the most striking parts of the story for me. Right. So we're, we're reaching a point where the Amazon, which has always been considered sort of the lungs of the world, it's turning into savanna. It's at, it, it's at risk of turning into savanna. And instead of, of cleaning the earth air, it's actually accelerating climate change. And in some cases where the burns are the worst, it's actually pumping more carbon dioxide into the air than it can absorb. Um, now, if it turns into savanna, what happens, we lose 10,000 species are at risk. But also, it, the Amazon helps regulate the entire the weather patterns here in the in in South America, and South America produces a lot of food for the world. Um, so you, there's, there's a combination of factors that are really sort of scary. Not only does it, you know, contribute to climate change, it, con- it you know, contributes to more pollution in the air, but it also changes our, we- our weather patterns in, 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 a, in a region that makes a lot of food for the world. And so it, it is quite shocking what, what we're looking at. So let's talk about what happens when um, uh, the the rainforest comes down. Um, the, you know, basically, we have a, a, it's a story about poor people who are moving into the jungle and claiming land, and then that land ends up becoming homes and villages at, over time, and and then they inherit that that land, and the government basically, um, you know, has that amnesty program that allows them to to stay there and those. Those those uh, those homes become permanent um, places, uh, and and really the whole thing is about allowing them to raise cattle, right, Jessica? Because that's the thing that allows them to eventually flip it and sell and have a have a business. What 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 are the economics of all that end up looking like? And just just have about forty seconds left here. Okay. Yeah, so it, it used to be driven by a lot by poor folks by by poor you know individual farmers going into the Amazon and staking a claim. But what we've seen recently in the invasions is that they're very sophisticated. And we go into the story about this, you know, we did visit an, a camp, and it sprouted up in five months. It's had, you know, there's houses, there's a school, there's internet, there's running water. And so you, the poor farmers alone can't uh, uh, explain the sheer scale of the deforestation that we're seeing. There's money. Someone is financing some of this. Um, and so so I think that's really the, kind of the next step and the next investigation that we need to do is like wh- who who's actually behind a lot of this deforestation? There is so much in this story. Highly recommend you read all of it or listen to the story. Jessica Bryce, thank you so much. Senior Editor for Latin American News at Bloomberg. Jill Weber, thank you as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today about uh, Nikola's, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, well, it depends. I know, right? Yeah. Like I've heard. Some people say Tesla differently. Okay. Tesla, Tesla. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, Nikola's founder and former chairman uh, charged with misleading investors, stock dropping on the news today. Let's get into it with someone who has been covering this company for us, Bloomberg News reporter Ed Ludlow. He is in our San Francisco bureau. Um, Ed, great to have you here. So you know this story really, really well. Tell us about the latest. Yeah, so Trevor Milton has been charged by New York prosecutors for essentially lying, making misstatements, false statements to investors about Nikola's technology and the progress that the company made. Remember, this is a company that was founded with the ambition to make fuel cell-powered semi-trucks and battery electric semi-trucks. And along the way, all kinds of kind of weird, quirky stuff like the Badger pickup, which was scrapped eventually, sports vehicles, a network of hydrogen fueling stations. Um, and it's not a huge surprise. We knew that this investigation by both the DOJ and the SEC was ongoing. And indeed, the company's own internal investi- investigation through an outside law firm found you know, similar results that he'd made misstatements. But, but it is you know, a substantive step for- forward well, it's been a roller coaster story. I'm wondering what happens, Ed, to, to the company. I mean, shares down more than 10% right now. These shares were trading at nearly $80 a little over a year ago on June 9th. Uh, it has come fall, it has fallen far and fallen relatively quickly. Uh, where does the company go from here? The thing is that the company has been separate from Trevor Milton for some time. You know, he resigned as executive chairman in September of last year. You know, the company released a statement pointing out that this investigation or these charges are against Trevor Milton. They're not against Nikola Corp. You know, this is a completely separate. Nikola said that they cooperated with the investigation throughout its entire duration. And, and to be fair, you know, Nikola really refocused after Milton left. They, they kind of restructured. They had new executives put in place on the management team under the leadership of CEO Mark Russell. They scrapped those kind of extra projects that were underway, including the Badger pickup and those sports vehicles, they, they narrowed their focus. And they are now building slowly towards what they originally set out to do, which is to build battery electric semis and fuel cell powered semis. So, okay, step back. My understanding yes. in the legal documents was some reference to some stuff that you did. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell, right. tell us so, what that was. Not to make you so, the star of the story, but uh, I think this is all you know, important, especially in this environment we live where everything is fair game. It points out that this has not been a short story. It's been a story that's unfolded over a matter of months and years. So we reported in June 2020 that in Nikola's kind of coming out moment in 2016, December 2016, Trevor Milton was on stage with a truck right behind him over his shoulder. It was called the Nikola One. It was the first kind of big, splashy public presentation of Nikola's efforts to that point. It was supposed to be a fuel cell-powered truck, and it was presented to people in the room that included investors, interested parties, state officials. And we reported that, according to sources, the truck just didn't work. It didn't have any of the parts actually physically in it that would have made it capable of being operable, but it had never operated anyway. They'd never managed to get it to work. But here's the thing. Trevor literally stood on stage and said that it did work, that it was fully functioning. He even joked that they had to chain it down to stop people in the audience driving off with it. 
but it never worked. And that was something that at the time that we published the story in June, June 2020, Trevor Milton and Nicola pushed back in a very big way against, but was later, you know, said to be true by the company's own investigation and now by this SEC um, and New York Southern District investigation as well. So what could he face? And you have a new story out on the Bloomberg right now, Ed, that, that talks about what he can do between now and his trial. Right. He's out on $100 million in bail. That's secured by two properties that he owns in Utah. He's also promised to limit his travel to specific areas and not to contact investors other than the ones he has per, uh, personal relationships with. You're right. Yeah, the, he faces both criminal and security civil charges, right? You know, this is very serious. He has pleaded not guilty. Um, you know, the idea that he's pleaded not guilty is not a huge surprise. It's fair to say, based on his prior comments, his actions, his behaviors, the way that he talked about the company during his tenure, he has to remain in Utah. He is limited in his travel. He is not allowed to communicate with investors, for example, under the terms of his bail. Uh, in your, that reference to the story you just made, he does own a, a $36 million ranch in Utah. In fact, I actually spoke to the broker who sold him that ranch. He reckons it's now worth about 50 million US dollars. You know, it's right there near Salt Lake City in the mountains, a beautiful stream running by it. It has tennis courts. Lucky for him. Lucky for him. But the, the reality is the, these things are slow moving and he is going to have to, under the terms of his bail, stay in Utah and just wait for the trial to come. What about the company? What's the future? Do we even know yet, as Tim mentioned, way down from the highs that we've seen in the past for this company? What is right. the future? Is there a future? You credit where credit is due. Nikola has established notable partnerships in Europe with Aveco, which is one of the leading heavy truck companies in the world. My sources are telling me that they are making progress. In, in Ulm, Germany, they have a joint venture with Aveco to make battery electric semi-trucks. I'm hearing that the development of that is going well. The factory that they're trying to build is on target. Remember, those targets have moved several times since Trevor Milton left the company, but they are now in line with their new targets. Here in the United States, they're building a factory from scratch in Coolidge, Arizona. That is on track. They're building prototypes of real fuel cell trucks. They have a partnership on the technology side with Bosch. So there are lots of layers of credibility. But what you see across Wall Street is that they want to see something of substance that this company can eventually move towards generating revenue. I feel like another chapter, but ain't over yet, Ed. I feel the same way. I mean, <laughs> just you, you, know, you know, Bloomberg, NEF, our colleagues, they see a lot of potential for hydrogen yeah. and fuel cell powered trucks. The thing is, the company is still very much in get its act together mode. All right. Good stuff. As always, Ed Ludlow, part of uh, <laughs> the work that uh, was involved in some of this complaint. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent, Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I don't want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Yeah, just got about uh, 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Friday's Eve, it is Thursday, July 29th, 2021. Carol Master, Tim Stenovic in our Interactive Brokers Studio. Let's do the drive to the close with Larry Pitkowski. He's Managing Partner and Portfolio Manager at Good Haven Capital Management based in Milburn, New Jersey on the phone on this Thursday. And Larry, I'm looking at the equity trade. Uh, we're off our best levels of the session, definitely off our lows, but a little bit of a rally on a day when there was disappointing economic news. What is important to you when you look at how the markets are trading, the financial markets? Uh, You know, Carol, we at Good Haven are really not focused on trying to make day-to-day predictions about the markets. We're really focused on looking for uh, a handful of things that we think uh, we understand that we can buy at attractive prices and be right about the businesses. Uh, don't expect wonderful economic things to happen. Expect whatever you see is kind of what you get. And uh, that is how we approach the world. So day to day, you know, it's, it's harder to find bargains today. Markets are at elevated levels. But I have a very complex and sophisticated approach to try and address that, which is get up earlier, go to bed later, and keep looking. And if I don't find anything to do, we don't do anything. Ariana Huffington might have something to say, because that's going to mess up your sleep patterns, I'm just going to say. I I, I wonder, though, I mean, the little bits of news that we do get each and every day, whether it has to do with the economy or economic data, uh, or just the spread of the Delta variant, that, that has to, at some point, add up to perhaps the way that... Uh, you change your thinking about some certain strategy. So, so give us an example of like the holistic picture of what this is all adding up to right now. So, and, and where you see the opportunities. Well, let me let me step step back for a moment, Tim. I think it's a really good question. You know, uh, I, I was very happy to come back on the show because uh, the last time I was here, which was early 2021. Since then, we've completed at the Good Haven Fund our best six-month performance period since we started, up almost 25%, beat the S&P by 700 basis points or so. And in the spring of 2020, when there was panic and shutdown and whatnot, without being epidemiologists or macro uh, people, we did put a lot of cash to work because we felt that looking beyond the near term, there were bargains and we were investing with a margin of safety, and that has served us well. From where we sit today, there are obviously elevated levels. It's very upsetting to see uh, the Delta variant in cases spiking. There's human things to worry about. Uh, But we are very comfortable with the portfolio we have put together. We think we have upside and a margin of safety. And all we can do is try and take it company by company and, you know, also the level of stimulus in the system – uh, and zero interest rates. These are unusual conditions, and I think about it a lot, but it's hard to exactly put into practice how to address that. So we'll just right. try and be stock pickers and risk managers. And we want to talk about some of your stock picks that you like, but is there, just generally speaking, a lot of opportunity when you've got energy as a group as a whole up more than 30%, real estate's up 26%, financials up almost 25%, communication services up 24%. Pick your major industry group. There are 11 in the S&P 500. They're all up. Consumer staples is among the worst performers, up only 6%. Utilities are up about 6%. But everything else is some very strong double-digit, you know, 20 30% gains. Are there lots of opportunities or is a lot of the optimism of what we are seeing in 2021, even throughout the end of the year, already priced in for a lot of names? 
I would say two things. First of all, for certain industries, earnings are also up dramatically. Okay. True. Clearly, so I, and I think that's something to really uh, take into account, including, you know, alphabets are, you know, is a top uh, three holding for us. I mean, earnings have been up dramatically. We have plenty of other holdings, including Lenore in the real estate business. Earnings are up dramatically. So in many cases, uh, not all, multiples for a lot of our holdings are not actually up that dramatically, despite attractive stock and business performance. But you're asking a very good question, which is where, it, what is the market ignoring or where are their pockets of opportunity? And for instance, we've added recently to our holding in PG&E, which is the Northern California-based utility, uh, which is under new management. Which it's been under a, a lot of pressure, too. Been uh, under a lot of pressure, and there's some. The and, and we should state. recognize, you know, the, the the wildfires historically and the current Dixie wildfire. There are people whose lives have been affected. There's brave workers from Cal uh, Fire who are working on this and first responders. But new management there, led by Patty Poppy, who had a great track record at CMS Energy. Adam Wright, who had. Uh, had a great record at Mid-American owned by Berkshire, a uh, good CFO in Chris Foster, Joe Fortline, who came from PSE&G in Jersey. You have some new management, and I think if you listen to what uh, Patty is saying and articulating, they've come out of bankruptcy. They have a plan. They have a plan to address safety. You have a stock price that's trading you know, at a level way below on a multiple basis, its peers. And they've got hard work in front of them, but I think they're addressing it. So Alphabet, PG&E, give us another company you're optimistic about. Well, I, I, I tell you, we in Jan, late January, early February, we made uh, all of our purchases in a new holding then for us, which was Facebook. Hmm. I've written over the last couple of letters here at what I call Good Haven 2.0 about how this whole distinction between value and growth is a little bit messed up, okay? There is nothing inconsistent in value investing about owning good quality growing companies. You just don't want to pay a dramatically high multiple for them. In late February, in late January, early February, Facebook got down to, you know, 260 a share or so as there was fear about what was going to happen with the new Apple operating system. There was this rotation out of growing companies as interest rates went up a little bit. And we looked at that and said, well, we think we're paying, you know, maybe 17 times earnings or so ex cash for what we think is still going to be an attractively growing business run by very talented management team. And that was a recent purchase that is so far, you know, worked out well and I think has a long runway to go. Hey, Larry Pitkowski, I want to ask you, are you at all concerned about the economy, U.S. economy, global economy shutting down again because of the Delta variant? And are you at all making any adjustments to investments because of that? You know, Carol, I'm concerned about about everything, but I, I, I'm always uh, reminded of somebody who very smart who once said to me, look, if you ask most people their macroeconomic view about the future, you'll learn a lot about the person, but not a lot about the future. Hmm. It's hard to translate certain of these concerns about, you know, what do you do if you think you're going to own something for many years? Having said that, uh, my expectation, if I were forced to have one, would be that, you know, we would not go into a, you know, kind of a complete shutdown. But anything is possible, and I think we are managing money without financial, you know, not on margin, without financial leverage, because strange things can happen, as we saw, sadly, in the spring of 2020. And we want to be able to try and take advantage of it for us and our fellow shareholders. 
Uh, we only have about uh, 20 seconds left. Um, are you worried about some sort of pullback in the near future, Larry? Pullback would actually be good. Yeah? How big of a pullback? Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, and I don't know anybody who can predict such things. But if you <laughs> are a, a – point. If you are a I – I, I mean, I'd love to meet somebody. It would be a whole lot easier than – Maybe you'd, you'd, you'd employ them, working right? Working really hard. I mean, yeah, so I'm, not, I'm not opposed to not working so hard if I thought I could yield the right result. <laughs> right. But pullback should not be for the long-term investor right. that's, not, that's not leveraged. You should, you should look forward to some occasional pullbacks. How else right. are you going to find attractive things to buy? Got it. Hey, good stuff. Uh, Larry Pitkowski over at Good Haven Capital Management joining us. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.